This week is Brexit week. This week, Prime Minister Theresa May laid out her plans for leaving the European Union to an invited audience in London. She took the same message to the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland. She may even have time to present it to Parliament. Hello, this is Anthony Day with your Sustainable Futures report for Friday the 20th of January. We've come a long way from Brexit means Brexit, a red, white and blue Brexit. Mrs May set out 12 points, which would be the foundation of her negotiating strategy. It's clear that her intention is for the United Kingdom to leave the customs union and no longer to be a member of the European single market. She expects us to continue to enjoy full access to it. Whatever happens, there will be implications for all aspects of daily life and commercial activity in the UK. Red tape is one thing, but protecting consumers and businesses is something else. So how will regulations change? In particular, how will environmental regulations and standards survive the UK's departure from the EU? This week, I've been able to talk to Martin Baxter, Chief Policy Advisor at IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. Here's what he told me. Well, Martin, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Now, it's been said that when we leave the EU, we take back control, we can get rid of all the Brussels red tape. So do you foresee a bonfire of regulations after we leave? And would that be a good thing? Well, I think, you know, in the, in the short term, I, I don't see um, a huge um, bonfire of uh, regulations. The government's made clear that it wants to put all existing laws and regulations into the Great Repeal Bills. So all EU law um, will immediately be transposed into UK law when we exit the EU. And then they've also confirmed, and this was one of the really interesting things, I think, from Theresa May's speech on the 17th of January, was that um, it would be for British Parliament to decide on any changes to that law after the full scrutiny and proper parliamentary debate. Um, I think so that gives an element of protection, so it's not necessarily at the whim of a minister um, that that, 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 um, big changes can be put forward. So I think that's quite interesting. So um, I do see us having some interesting challenges in terms of the Great Repeal Bill, which I think, you know, would be interesting to explore. But in terms of immediately, I don't see huge change in terms of that body of legislation. You mentioned Theresa May's speech earlier this week. Uh, People have been waiting for this for a long time. She's done a lot to clarify, possibly not enough, some people would say, but she did lay out 12 points, which is her path to Brexit. The implication appears to be that we will leave the customs union and that we will no longer be members of the single market. But we hope to have unfettered access to the single market. So that means, I believe, that we will no longer take part in drawing up the regulations which govern the single market. But if we're going to trade in that area, presumably we're going to have to continue to observe those regulations. 
Yeah, and I think this is going to be one of the really interesting challenges. Um, as you rightly point out, um, the indication is that we will leave this European single market and the customs union, and the UK government hopes to negotiate some sort of agreement to um, operate within um, either all or some aspects of uh, of the customs union. So that will be interesting to see what that agreement um, will include. I think... Um, one thing that did come out in the speech was around um, a commitment to maintain common standards and frameworks um, within our own domestic markets. Um, so the implication were there was that some of the standards that have been set in the EU um, will actually be retained. I think an interesting one here in terms of trade um, within the European area, if I can call it that, um, is that a lot of the product standards are set through SEN, the European Standards Body, and SEN is not an EU institution. And BSI is the UK's national standards body, has the intent to remain a member of SEN, and therefore they, they operate under a single standard uh, policy, so there won't be differences in national standards. So I think um, when we leave the EU, uh, and through the Great Repeal Bill, we will implement um, the body of EU legislation into UK law, we will still have the same standards. So um, there shouldn't be big changes immediately in terms of that. Of course, whether there will be um, tariffs to pay um, is, a, is a separate matter. I think um, the, the, the bigger challenge will come as the UK, um, if it is successful in setting up trade deals with non-EU countries, um, how the, you know, the, how those standards apply. Um, for example, if we got into a trade deal with the US, so would the US expect their standards to be um, an entry point into the UK, and then for products which would then subsequently potentially pass through into the EU, um, how would that work? And I think there's um, a big question mark there. Yes, I, I think that's an important question mark because people have said, oh, the US and a number of other countries are very keen to do deals, but there must be strings attached. And if it, uh, if the US says, right, things which conform to our standards must be accepted by you, the UK, then uh, that could actually be detrimental for us because a lot of standards, I think, are, are said to be weaker in the US than they are here. Uh, I can't see them actually crossing into the EU because the EU firmly uh, insists that anything to be sold in the EU must conform with EU norms, mustn't it? Um, absolutely, and I think so. This is where, on the one hand, the UK, in terms of maintaining trading links with the EU, um, the implication is that we will need to um, operate to those standards if the UK's domestic market then subsequently at a point in time accepts substandard products for our own market, then that potentially has negative trade consequences for, um, for the UK in terms of UK businesses um, trying to compete domestically. I think that's, that's going to be one of the big challenges. Um, so a lot of work to do, I think, in that area. Another thing which came out of the speech was that Mrs May made it clear that the European Court of Justice would no longer rule uh, or would no longer bind the UK. But if we are trading with people within the single market and there is a dispute, who actually resolves it? I mean, for example, if you take the US, 
and if there is a dispute between the US and a customer in Germany, say, does the European Court of Justice come in there or, or what sort of arbitration is used? Well, I think if we're talking about, um, I, th I think there are a couple of areas. So one is um, when the UK has left the EU, then um, domestically it will be the UK Supreme Court that which will decide um, what happens in terms of UK laws and regulations. That's fairly clear. Um, mm -hmm. If there is um, contractual disputes between um, producers in the UK and producers in other parts of the EU, well, the contractual um, process will determine where and, and which courts will decide on things. So the European Court of Justice will only decide on matters of EU law um, and how national courts within the European Union should um, interpret that law. So the, the European Court of Justice is, it has that interpretive process. I think an interesting point is going to be um, as the UK transitions out of the EU, there may be cases which are before the European Court of Justice which involve the UK and whether or not they will still have any... Um, any, any jurisdiction at that point in time is unclear. Um, potentially the great repeal bill will need to um, at least outline at, at which point there might be European Courts of Justice um, supremacy, if that's the right word, um, through that negotiated transition process. Of course, when you issue a contract, if you ever read the terms and conditions on the back of a purchase order, don't know whether anybody does these days because it's all electronic, but usually the last line is, this order is subject to the jurisdiction of the courts of England and Wales. Uh, it could be subject, it could be stated that it's subject to any court. It could be stated as a contractual term that it is subject to the European Court of Justice, and if the if, if the buyer wants to impose that and won't buy otherwise, then maybe we are actually going to be dragged within the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice anyway. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that it would um, necessarily work like that. I think um, the jurisdiction would be a national court. So it might be a Dutch court or a German court, and that oh. court would have to take any rulings in terms of interpretation of EU law into account in their own decision-making process. So I don't think um, you can't write a contract that just says it will be the European Court of Justice that determines whether or not we've broken a particular contract. So I think that's fairly um, well established in contract law. Um, uh, 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 and we'll see how that plays out. Yes. Well, there's a lot of things that we've really got to see, aren't there? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned the great, the great repeal bill, which is basically repealing 40 years legislation. And you said that Parliament could, in fact, modify things as they go through the process. But there's so much of it that it is going to take a while, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there are a number of points with the Great Repeal Bill. So the government has said that it will, um, after it has triggered Article 50, um, it will include in the Queen's speech um, the intention to develop a Great Repeal Bill, which will take the body of EU law and put that into and empower the UK um, and convert it into British law um, under the under the British courts. Um, 
in some ways that's all well and good and very sensible that gives us continuity in terms of um, legal uh, requirements that um, businesses and citizens um, and public authorities have to abide by um, so so you know that that makes um, a lot of sense um, there are some aspects of EU law which um, the great repeal bill won't be able to deal with um, because it mandates European un institutions, for example, and a, and a role for them. And clearly, because we will be out of the European single market and most likely outside the customs union as well, then they will not have authority in the UK. And the UK cannot unilaterally determine that UK firms, for example, would have to register chemicals with the European Chemicals Agency because it's not within the UK government or parliament's gift to be able to do that. So there will have to be some changes um, to some aspects of environmental law as it goes through the Great Repeal Bill. I think um, DEFRA's Secretary of State, Andrea Ledsom, indicated something like two-thirds to three-quarters of um, environmental legislation should be fine, but that leaves a significant body which isn't easily transferable into um, th through this process. I think thereafter, um, there is an opportunity to, um, over a period of time, review what laws and regulations we actually need in the UK and what legal structures we need going forward. And that will, I suspect, be quite a, a significant um, undertaking. Um, so we'll have to see how that plays out. Well, we're in the middle of some schemes like EU ETS and ESOS. Where are we going to go with those if we, or when we leave uh, leave the EU. Mm. So I think um, ESOS, which comes through the Energy Efficiency Directive, is you know should be fairly straightforward. Actually, the Great Repeal Bill would be able to put that into UK law, ensure that um, firms and companies um, carry out the periodic audits um, and energy reviews, etc., and then at a point in time, the UK could decide through you know, the normal legislative process that it might want to amend things. That would be fairly straightforward. I think where there is a more interesting one, if I may, is um, under EU ETS, because the government can um, develop a national um, carbon emissions trading scheme um, and mirror entirely the EU trading scheme with the same standards and protocols for verifying emissions, et cetera, and the same process for allocating um, carbon credits into the system. I think what it can't do, though, is it cannot force um, other EU countries or other EU companies to be able to trade with UK companies because we will not be part of the EU scheme unless some special arrangement is made and then you know, what the conditions of those are. So that's where the difficulty lays is, lies is in terms of mandating um, some aspects which require um, other parts of the EU to participate. It's not within our gift to solely do that. Um, so we'll be, as far as EU ETS is concerned, we will be operating in a much smaller market rather than having the opportunity to trade right across Europe, uh, the Euro area. So, yeah, um, potentially, EU, potentially. Sorry. Um, and I think it's interesting because, of course, the UK was the first country to set up a national emissions trading scheme. So we had an EU carbon, uh, sorry, a UK carbon emissions trading scheme, which we effectively 
um, exported and, and, and shared and, and, and was adopted by the EU overall and now um, potentially will be going back to some sort of national scheme, although I'm sure it will have equivalents. Um, and you know, if you look more broadly into the Paris Agreement, then the potential for um, collaboration between schemes, not just within the the EU and maybe linking into the UK, but more broadly, um, you know, that that's certainly envisaged uh, um, as a potential um, longer term. We seem to be a bit two-faced on this. On the one hand, you, you show us as a, a leader in setting up an emissions trading scheme. On the other hand, the government has been fairly harsh on the renewables industry. It's driven a lot of companies out of business. Uh, what's your feeling for the political climate, given that we will not any longer be bound by the European regulations? Do you think that the government may just decide that it's going to come down even harder on renewables? I think um, renewables is going to be interesting um, as it comes through in, for example, the industrial strategy and the role of renewables in the um, carbon emissions reduction plan, which the Department of Business is currently putting together. Um, and I think we'll be consulting in, um, hopefully, um, by the end of the first quarter of 2017. I think more broadly, though, I mean, we have the Climate Change Act. We have a very clear um, carbon emissions reduction targets for 2050. We have this government indeed set after we'd, um, you know, taken the, the 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 vote in the referendum to leave the EU. It set a fifth carbon budget, um, which um, was in line with the recommendations with, from the Independent Committee on Climate Change. It is consistent with a two-degree warming in the Paris Agreement, doesn't go far enough really in terms of, uh, or at the moment in terms of getting to one and a half degrees. But but I think what you can say is that um, in that context, um, there hasn't yet been a rollback from um, those commitments either internationally or nationally in the Climate Change Act. I think that longer term policy, so from 2025 onwards, um, it gets far more difficult for the UK to achieve its um, you know, pretty ambitious um, carbon re reduction targets. The role of well, we could be looking at, a, at a, a hockey stick effect, couldn't we, where we go on at a low level for a while and then at the last minute we find we've got to do a tremendous amount. Um, you, you say that we haven't rode back, but George Osborne uh, set up, he, he revised the um, taxes on cars, which means that um, driving a low pollution car has virtually no tax benefit. Now, the new Chancellor has done nothing to repeal that, so from the 1st of April, uh, if you drive a clean car, you have have no benefit over um, driving a dirty one, really. Um, well, I guess you have the benefits of using less fuel. Um, but I think um, more broadly, when you look at the industrial strategy, we've already seen that um, you know one aspect is likely to be um, in the automotive sector, um, electric cars. Now, clearly, um, there's a, a particular a, a, an urban air quality benefit from electric cars, yeah. but they need to be powered by low carbon energy. And that's why um, I think looking forward. Um, the critical aspect is going to be how well do the um, carbon emissions reduction plan, um, which is required under the Climate Change Act, and the 
Act and the industrial strategy, how mutually supportive are they? So is the industrial strategy really going to lead us to a low-carbon future? Um, and do we have that, um, you know, that, that well planned in in terms of the carbon emissions reduction plan? That's certainly something we'll be pushing for and looking at um, as the proposals come through, um, you know, hopefully quite soon. So are you reasonably confident that we will continue on the same sort of path as far as things like waste and the sector economy and air quality and so on are, are concerned? Um, well, I think it's, you know, we certainly don't want to be complacent. I think there is clearly um, some opportunities to make improvements. So resource efficiency um, is, uh, and, and the drive to recovering economic value from the materials that we use um, within the economy um, is absolutely essential. I think there's nothing like the devalued pound, um, which raises the price and the cost of imports of materials in the UK to um, potentially put a, a better economic uh, value on recovering materials, for example. So why, the, why would we send those, those materials elsewhere to other parts of the world for material recovery when we should be doing it here and extracting maximum economic value out of them? Um, in terms of air quality, you know, um, you know, it's very clear that the government has been absolutely appalling in terms of being able to meet um, EU um, set air quality targets, been in court twice. Well, it's been taken to court. Yeah. It's been taken to court twice, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we fully expect the government is going to have to take this forward. Um, I think it's interesting to see the work of um, the Mayor of London in particular in terms of driving um, ultra-low um, emission zones um, and, and helping to stimulate, I think, uh, a move to low carbon transport. Um, I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, so we've absolutely got an awful lot to do. Um, but I think there is, we have the capability to do it. Whether we have um, the political will, um, well, I think that's always going to be questioned. Um, the long-term future direction for the UK in terms of industrial strategy, 25-year environment plan coming out from DEFRA, um, a longer-term carbon emissions reduction plan. Um, I think what we've got to see is um, firstly set those outcomes to be very ambitious and then use um, the Great Repeal Bill to make sure we have the right um, regulatory framework to deliver on that. And that has to, um, you know, and that needs, you know, cross-party um effort um, with business and other support to, to deliver it. So there are certainly going to be challenges as far as rearranging and reorganizing things to take account of the new situation once Brexit is complete. And perhaps up till now our discussion has been a bit negative, but um, do you see an upside? Do you see benefits from uh, the, the Brexit process? I, I do. I mean, I, I've I've had the uh, the opportunity to engage in the developments of um, some aspects of EU environmental law. I see where you can put forward um, what seems to be a fairly um, tight, if I can put it like that, uh, tightly worded some tightly worded proposals. Um, when you have 28 member states um, contributing, then um, I think you know it's fair to say that some aspects get compromised and 
you know, are maybe less efficient and therefore less effective as they potentially could be. Um, so I think there are opportunities to say, okay, if we are very, very clear about the environment and economic outcomes that we want, let's make sure we have a really effective um, policy and regulatory framework backed up by effective enforcement to deliver it, um, then it might look slightly different than it does at the moment. Um, I don't see that as being a bad thing. I see that as being a real opportunity. Um, absolutely, though, that process must not um, in any way seem to be seen to diminish the environmental outcomes that we want. And I think probably, you know, the bit that gives me probably um, the biggest concern is should the UK not get a deal um, which um, the government uh, thinks is worthwhile, then then I think we're in a race to the bottom. And I think that will be incredibly bad for not just the economy um, overall, but certainly for the environment. So we're going to hang on tight for the ride for the next few months and see how it all turns out. Martin, thank you very much for your insights onto this. Uh, I think maybe we'll get together and talk again, perhaps this time next year, and see what more we can see uh, a year down the line. I very much look forward to it. Thank you, Anthony. Martin Baxter, Chief Policy Advisor at the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. And apologies for the quality of that recording. We had to do it over the internet and we couldn't make our preferred software work, so it's a little bit sibilant and I'm sorry about that. Anyway, no doubt Brexit will occupy our minds and the news headlines for many months to come. I hope the government doesn't lose sight of all the other important issues which it has to address. Here at the Sustainable Futures Report, we won't lose sight of the sustainability challenges which arise every day. Yes, 2016 was the hottest year on record. There's a new initiative on the circular economy from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Electric cars are being upgraded with better batteries and a longer range. These and other issues will be covered in next week's Sustainable Futures Report. For the moment, though, this is Anthony Day thanking you for listening and reminding you that while this comes to you without sponsorship, advertising or subsidy, I'm always available to chair your conference, deliver a keynote speech, host your award ceremony or facilitate your webinar. Keep me in mind. Have a great week and I'm back with the Sustainable Futures Report next week. Music